lean into God's faithfulness. As Lyle said, the songs that we sing and the words we want to put in our hearts and on our lips uh, every Sunday of leaning into his greatness and his beauty and his faithfulness in that. And we are seeing that in this series that we started last week. And so, uh, hey, if you came in late, I'm Jack, one of the pastors here. And uh, glad that you're here. We started a series called Joshua, looking at the book of Joshua, which is in the Old Testament. Um, and it's kind of right after the Pentateuch, which is uh, the first five books of the Bible that most scholars believe Moses authored to kind of help these people, these Israelites that were in captivity for so long to kind of say, hey, here's how you relate to the one true God. And here's how your relationship is to go with him. And here's how things are, are to be. And they're on this journey following God. And they get to the promised land. And then there's some disobedience in their heart. And God says, okay, we're going to work on this. And it's kind of like this spiritual timeout that lasts 40 years. And I hope your timeouts never last that long because uh, that's a long time. And so they're 40 years later, right? They're circling back to this promised land and, and Moses passes away and Joshua is now the leader. And we looked last week, this idea that God was saying to Joshua, hey, you be strong and courageous. And that being a follower after God, being a follower after Jesus is not uh, for wimps. It's not. That this is to be a mission people and to live a life on mission takes courage and it takes strength, and it takes more than what you just can create and muster up on your own. It really takes leaning in to God's faithfulness and to his strength that he pours in and he promises to. And he says, we're going we're gonna to be a people that live on mission, and we want to go forward faithfully. So we kind of looked at that last week. If you missed that, you can catch it up on, online, or uh, in, a, in about a week or so, you'll be able to use the app. Ooh, okay. Um, so that's coming, reminding you about that, and we're excited to we'll introduce it to you next week. Um, some things. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to be in a story tonight of uh, God's interaction, kind of right after he'd given this call to Joshua. And then there's this interaction, this story, this narrative that unfolds. And we're just going to look into it tonight, pull out a few applications for us. And what does it mean to walk as a person of faith, living out, uh, pursuing faith in Jesus? And, and again, if you're here and maybe kind of coming back to faith, coming back to church, I, I'm so glad that, that you're here. I'm so proud of you uh, for investing in your spiritual journey. And we want to be a place where you can be on that journey. And you don't have to have everything figured out. You can kind of be searching and investigating. We want to be that kind of church. Uh, to help people take next steps of faith. And so as you're turning there to Joshua chapter 2, or if you want to look on version, you can follow along there. All the notes and sermon passages, uh, the scripture passages are there. But I want you to kind of think with me about uh, how many of you have ever had a daydream where you wanted to be on a TV game show? No one. Awesome. This illustration is going to totally bomb. So... <laughs> Um, seriously, anyone ever wanted to be on a game show before? Okay, one person. Sweet. So here's what I want you to do. Turn to like one or two people right around you. If you could be on a game show, okay, what game show would you choose to be on? You've got about 22 and a half seconds. Go. What game show would you choose to be on? Be thinking about it. What would it be? Share it with a neighbor. If you're sitting by yourself, share it with Jesus. You and Jesus have a conversation. It's cool. All right. How many of you would kind of go like old school game show? Um, let's see. What's the Wheel of Fortune? 
Anyone do Wheel of Fortune? Nate, driving down from Phoenix. Yes. All right. Uh, Nate, obviously, so if you're like a Wheel of Fortune person, maybe you and Nate can hang out afterwards and you can kind of quiz each other on puzzles and figure it out. There's got to be an app for that or something. Uh, okay. So anyone Jeopardy? He. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even smart enough to think about being on Jeopardy. There's no way. Um, what other game shows? Just shout out a couple. Family Feud, Price is Right. Oh, Price is Right would be fun. Wouldn't it? Would you get like matching shirts with all your friends? That, okay, like Drew's face on it or something. Um, I think that's how you, you win. Okay, any other game shows? How about The Wall? Like that's a present day one. No one watches it. Perfect. Sorry, LeBron. Okay. Um, okay, you do watch it. Sweet. Would you do that or no? Okay, you would. It seems pressure, because you have to, anyway. Um, but how many of you actually watched uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You've watched that game show, and like it's all intense. How many of you would want to be on that one? Okay, there'd be a few of you that would want to do it. It's like all intense, right, when they lower the lights, and it's like, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But you remember that game show because it had what? It had three lifelines, right? And everyone loved the lifelines, because you're like, oh, hey, if I'm dumb in that moment, and I don't know the answer, because that would be like, I would need 12 or 13 lifelines, but you could call a friend, right? Or you could, um, I think it was 50-50, they would knock off some of the answers like that. Phone a friend or poll the audience. Remember, the audience got to participate, and then hopefully you would guess and, and hope that you had a smart audience that you could choose along with them to whittle down the answers, right? You remember watching this? This is one of the, the tricky parts of game shows. And tonight, we're going to look at kind of a, not a biblical game show, if you will, but kind of this notion, this idea of a lifeline. So uh, for all of you who are like, man, I thought we were going to play a game show. Yeah, disappointment's a part of life. Sorry. Um, but uh, I want you to keep in mind this idea of lifeline, because the story we're going to look at tonight in Joshua chapter 2 deals a lot with this, and we're going to look at how this impacts us in our day and age. And so this story involves and kind of revolves around a woman named Rahab. Now, Rahab, we don't even know her last name, but we do know an occupation, because it's interesting how this whole story starts. In fact, remember Joshua has been told, hey, you be strong and courageous. You're going to go take this land. And then in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, here's what it says. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp. Now, why did he do this secretly? I don't know. You, you can guess. Joshua, remember, was a part of the 12 spies who originally went and scoped out Canaan, the promised land, uh, 40 years earlier, right? And two came back and said, we could totally do this. And 10 came back and said, there's no way. God's not big enough to overcome what that obstacle is. And then God said, well, okay, you're going to wander around in spiritual timeout for like 40 years. This generation is going to die off. And so I think this time Joshua's like, oh, 12 is too many people. Uh, let's just send two. And I'm not even going to tell anyone about it. And he says, you go, you go spy out this land. Here's what he says. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River. Remember, they're on this side of the Jordan River. That's what they have to cross. That's what we're going to look at next week and what God does in that whole journey of crossing over to the other side. He instructed them, scout out the land uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out, came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there that night. Yeah, that happened. 
And so instantly when you read that, you're like, ooh, this is in the Bible? That seems a little odd, doesn't it? Isn't there a part of you, and maybe you're a Jesus follower, and there's a part of you that's like, wait a minute, um, what? Like, I think we're supposed to avoid that, right? Like, that's, that's not something we go seek out. And, and I don't understand, okay, so Joshua sends these two spies, they go spy out the land, and, and this is where they end up? At that house? That place? And isn't it instantly, there's a part of us that goes into a judgmental sense, right? It's natural. It's a part of, if you are a moral person, a person that has a compass that's pointing toward God and, and his ways and his things, there's a part of the story that right out of the gate, you're like, man, that doesn't seem to make sense. I don't understand that. What is God doing to you? What is he up to here? Spies are sent out. Joshua is saying, hey, look, we got to at least get a little bit of a game plan going here. we got to understand, so we're instantly introduced to Rahab. We don't even know her last name. But we know an occupation. Some scholars believe maybe she ran a brothel of some kind because her, her place is in the outer wall of Jericho. Jericho is an incredibly fortified city. It's not a huge city, but it's a very fortified uh, walls all around it. And, and her place is kind of on the outer wall near the gate. And so lots of people would come and go past that. In this city, many knew about Rahab, but I I bet very few actually knew her. She was a woman that was probably talked a lot about, but maybe not talked much with. She was noticed, but probably seldom acknowledged. So there's something going on here in her story. God's getting ready to send his people to take over the land and sends them on a mission. And we, when we read this story, have an instant feeling about Rahab, about what's going on. We we don't even know the full story. There's just something inside of us that feels a way. And what I want us to see is that God feels differently. My instant reaction, just in my humanness, is one way but we serve an incredibly gracious and loving Father who feels differently than maybe what the labels that we project on people or that they've adopted that we see. Because we live in a culture that is really all about first impressions. It's about people's past and the impressions and it leaves with people, right? And so we put a lot of energy into making good first impressions. We put a lot of energy into to kind of avoiding some things that leave lasting impressions upon people. But I think what the scriptures are continually going back to, especially in the New Testament, and even here alluding to a little bit through the story of Rahab, is to say, look, don't get stuck on first impressions. Don't get stuck on lasting impressions or the past impressions of people because their past doesn't have to determine their future. That's how we see it, instantly. 
but that doesn't necessarily have to be the story. We must be a people, as a people of God, who focus and create lasting impressions that God loves people, all people. And he's longing to meet people right where they're at and introduce them to new beginnings and new transformation that could be a part of the story that he writes. And so instantaneously, we're, we're struck by this a little bit. So the story is there that the two spies show up, they're in her house, and then there's a knock on the door. And somehow someone has told the king that, that these two have come to spy out the land. And so you can read through some of the rest of this chapter. And, and all of a sudden, Rahab is confronted by these military leaders who are saying, hey, bring out those two guys that were here. We know they're here to spy out the land. And, and she kind of plays dumb, so to speak, and, and really fudges the truth a little bit. And she says, I, I don't know where they went. Um, she had sent them up to the roof, but she's like, I don't know where they went. They, yeah, they were here, but I don't know what they're up to. And, and we sent them out the gate, and they took off, and they kind of went to the left, I think. I don't really fully know where they went, but if you hurry, I bet you could find them because they're just traveling on foot. And so she goes into protection mode for these two spies who are sent by God to spy out this land. And the guard goes after and Soon after that, the whole gate of the city is shut for the night. If you're two spies on a secret mission, the gate closing, no bueno, right? It means you're there. You're not going anywhere, and you're hoping they don't double back. And so you're stuck there. And all of a sudden, some things are unfolding, and here's what we begin to read, starting verse, kind of verse 8. Uh, before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. And she says these incredible words. Just listen to these. I know the Lord has given you this land. She told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord, how Yahweh, how he has made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to those two kings who came up against you. And you annihilated them is what she's saying, whose people were completely destroyed. And in verse 11, she says this, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such stories and such things. And then this phrase, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens and above the earth below. Your God is the real deal. What you have to understand about Jericho, Rahab, her story, her backdrop, is that she's been uh, living in this land of Canaan, which is a land that has multiple gods, multiple deities that you're supposed to pray to, supposed to look out, uh, look out for you, you're supposed to sacrifice to, and, and kind of pursue this, this polytheistic kind of pursuit. And there's all this terror and all this fear that's building in the hearts of the people as they hear the stories of Israel and the story of Yahweh, their God. And people are beginning to have their hearts melt, she says, in this fear. And for most of them, it's paralyzed them. But somewhere along the way, in Rahab, in her story, it's not paralyzed her. It's propelled her to begin to look at who the real God is. See, we can look at this story and go, okay, why did 
Why did those two spies go to that house? Listen, it's because God was already at work at that house. God was already at work in that house. That's why they went there. And we could sit and go, that's a label that we shouldn't see people, God working in their life because of that label. And God say, no, 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 I have a heart for people. And I'm always at work drawing people to me. And here's Rahab. Seeing every story, hearing every story that's unfolding. And instead of being crushed in fear, she moves forward with some courage to say, I think I'm starting to see things more clearly than I ever have. And all these polyistic things and deities that I'm supposed to be praying to, I think they're just idols. I think they're just wood carvings. I don't think they're real. And these two spies are sent, and all of a sudden she's able to have a conversation and voice something that's been going on in her heart. Your Lord, your God is the real God. And I see it. I don't understand it all yet, but I'm beginning to see it. And then she has this bold request. She says to these two spies, I'm going to help you escape, but would you promise me that my family, my brothers and sisters, my mom, my dad, my family, would you spare us? Because we know God's given you this land, and I know it's coming. Doomsday is here. What I'm asking is for grace. What I'm asking is for undeserved mercy. Can I just find hope that if your God's the real God, would you spare me? Would there just be grace that flows my way that's not based on what I do? I'm just asking. And these two spies carry on this conversation and basically promise our lives for years. You gotta have everybody in this room and have the time that we shout, and we know what's gonna happen. The spies are gonna go back to the land. They're gonna cross the Jordan in a day or two. They're gonna be there, and then God's gonna say, look, we're not gonna fight for this city. We're not gonna do military power like you think you're gonna do. So Joshua, I told you, always follow me, not just come up with your own plans, and here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna march around this city, and then you're gonna yell real loud, and I'm gonna bring the walls down. You don't even have to touch anything. And I'm going to give you victory here. We'll get to that in a few weeks. And the spies in that moment say to Rahab, this scarlet cord they probably saw laying around. And they said, you get everyone into your house, this place, and you tie the scarlet cord from the window. And we'll know that everyone in this place belongs to you. Our life for your life is something goes wrong. But God's grace is coming to your place tonight. And so she lowers these spies down, tells them to go the opposite way where the military leaders took off. They go and hide for a few days and then they head back to Joshua and, and report on everything that's been unfolding. Report of what they know. See, why did they go to this house? Well, because God was already at work in this house, because God's always at work drawing people to himself. In the midst of everything that was unfolding, people were gripped by fear, but Rahab became gripped by something else, an awareness to, to the real God and his real activity in life 
for some of you, you may have these fears that are all around you in life. It could be things from economic standpoint. It could be things from uh, relationships going awry, things that are so big around you. Can I just remind you that in this moment, just like Rahab, in your moment, you can either be overwhelmed by all the fears or you can begin to see the one who is bigger than those fears, who says he can be with you. And that maybe you would have kind of a Rahab vision moment where you begin to see through those fears and begin to see the one who is bigger than those. So you begin to understand and begin to see that God's heart was really for people. I love what the Bible says, what Peter writes. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's heart of love and wanting to redeem people and wanting people to come home into relationship with him, I don't think we'll ever know how big a heart God really has. And I think sometimes the longer we walk with Jesus, here's the real test of spiritual maturity. Does God's heart get bigger or smaller? Because if God's heart's getting smaller toward people, and it's starting to exclude more people, then, friend, I don't know if you're actually seeing God for who he really is. Because the God of the scriptures, the longer I follow him, the more I try to understand, his heart just gets bigger. His grace is just larger. What does Paul write? I pray that you'd understand this love that's so high and so deep and so wide that you'd be overwhelmed by it. Are you overwhelmed by God's love? Or has it become trivial? Something that you can skip past? God wants to use you. He's already at work within your life, within the backdrop of your life. How cool would it be to begin to see your life as one that God is moving through so that he can put on display his love and his heart for people around you? That's what Rahab noticed is, yeah, there's a whole bunch of God's power that she sees and the fear that it's driving in people, but it's God's activity on behalf of his people. That's what's capturing her attention. I can't believe your God's actually intimately involved and active. What if we begin to let people around us see God's activity in our lives? Then it might draw their attention, not just to you, but your attention to the one that you follow. It draws their attention home. You may never know what story you share, what thought that you say, what con comment you make that will spark someone's curiosity to begin to look for the one true God. You may never know that in your weekly conversations with people and the stories that you share of God's activity in your life, the things that you're maybe praying for them, maybe just a simple kind word, you may never know that that would spark something for them. Because that's what happened in Rahab's life, is something got sparked where she began to see God's really active on behalf of his people. He's always at work trying to draw people to faith and draw people to himself because God has a heart for people. And God's also looking for people who have an active faith. That's what we see in Rahab's story. 
is that she has this act of faith. It wasn't just something that she thought about or something that she talked about even or began to wonder about. It actually began to permeate her life and her living, and she took risk with it. Faith is believing in something and allowing it to shape how you now behave and act and respond, that it has this activity to it. You have to, you have to go for it. So I'm in China one year with a group of students. Uh, we're there on a mission trip, and on one fun day we have this, we hike this mountain. We call it Monkey Mountain because there's monkeys along the way that we go get to feed peanuts and pet, and they get to comb your hair, and it's really weird and creepy. Um, but uh, after you get past the monkeys, you go up to the top, and there's this zip line, right, that goes from one side of the canyon to the other. And at first, I was like, well, I'm here with a couple leaders and, and nine kids that I'm supposed to bring home to America, and this doesn't look like it's OSHA-approved at all, because really what you do is they put straps on you, and then they take one wing nut, and they just spin it, and then push you off across the, the canyon that's, you know, 300 feet up type thing. And, and I thought, I don't know. That didn't look very safe. And in that moment, one of the leaders looks at me and says, I'll go first. And I said, you're dumb, go ahead. Um, and Mike takes off. And he's just screaming like a kid in a candy store on Christmas the whole way across the canyon. And he made it across. And so I thought, Surely it's safe now. So we all went. But it was in that moment of realizing, okay, it's not just, okay, I can think about it. I can maybe believe it would work. But until you actually strap yourself in and go, there's action that needs to be taking place in order for you to experience what it is. And in a lot of the same ways, our faith needs activity in it. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to actually put it into practice and to do it and to give yourself over to it. This is what James writes in the New Testament, referring back to Rahab as he's talking about what faith is like. Here's what he says, James chapter 2, verse 24, 26. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do. We have faith, and we're saved by faith alone, but if we're really saved by faith, there's some kind of action that's going to come from that. And then he says, Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. What he's saying is that true faith is this idea that, yes, I am saved by grace alone. I don't earn anything in order to get right with a holy God. But by putting my faith in Jesus and what his life did and what he did on my behalf, that it, it's got to activate something within me. And in this moment, Rahab's got to say, okay, it's not about just knowing and thinking that there might be one true God. I'm going to actually put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to act like it. And, and it's going to shape how I carry out actions. Faith is not merely about head knowledge. It's to per, uh, penetrate our hearts and permeate our life and our actions and our living. Faith has action to it. It's also knowing God, because of his love, loves to look past our past and our labels. Aren't you glad that God looked past your past? 
man, I am. Aren't you glad that you're not stuck in the past with the things the way things used to be? That God actually said, hey, you know what? I know you're here, and yeah, it's kind of a mess right now, but I believe something better for you, and I've got something better for you. And so he's going to pull us forward to help us understand, to say that there is something that gives us a hope that it's kind of like those infomercials. There's a before and after picture. That here's the before and it's a mess. And here's the after. It's just so much better. That each one of us, as followers of Jesus, we kind of have a before and an after. And our before was kind of messy and it's, it's here and it could have been our label that stuck with us forever. And God said, no, 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 my grace can heal that and look past that and, and, and move you forward so you can have an after. And you can have a new hope and a new life with me. It reminds us that we all started there. See, Satan loves to live in the mode of always reminding us of who we were so that we stay stuck in the past. But Jesus and the scriptures are always telling us who we are, who we are in him, who we are in God, who we are in our future of where God wants to take us. And you look back through the character's of the Bible. You begin to see, okay, well, Moses, well, he was a murderer. That's how part of his story started, but yet God said, no, you're going to be the leader of my people. And he takes someone's past. He looks past it. He helps them overcome that and move into something better. Peter was just a fisherman. And Jesus said, no, you're going to be bigger than just a fisherman on a boat. We're going to build the church on you. That's crazy. Because God doesn't just see your story that it is right now. Rahab, this is your story. And it can be your label. In fact, the scriptures are going to point that label out so that people are reminded we are not stuck in our past. We're not held captive by just our label. You are not just an addict. You're not someone who's been abandoned. You are not just someone who is unfaithful. You're not just someone who quit. You are not just a criminal or a failure or an alcoholic or depressed, or unworthy, or abused, or anxious, or fearful. You are God's kid. You are a holy people. You're a part of the royal priesthood. You're a child of the king. You are renewed, and you are made whole, and you are healed. That's what we got to keep reminding ourselves. That's what God says your story is. And so he's calling us always to the future of that. You are a new creation. You are chosen. You are the beloved. And what we're reminded about in this story is aren't you glad that God gave Rahab a lifeline and literally said, hey, hang this, and it's going to be a reminder. See, you would hang there for the next probably 10 days or so, waving in the wind out her window in the wall of Jericho. And she would see, okay, I, I'm, I trust you, God. I don't even fully understand all this yet, but I, I'm banking everything I've got on you. And as we come to a time of communion, that's what we remember. That's what communion does in a lot of ways, is it reminds us that Jesus is our lifeline. And that just like the scarlet cord hung out a window one time, we have a Savior who hung on a tree on your behalf and my behalf, hung on a cross, and his blood ran. 
as he was pierced, as he gave himself up, that that crimson red blood would be the ultimate sacrifice that would set you free and set me free. That it wasn't based on my merit. It was just simply trusting in something bigger than me and trusting in the plan that God said, this is the way it's going to be. And so as we come to a time of communion, I just want to invite you in these next few moments that as you take that bread, as you drink that juice, it's just a reminder of his body broken, given up for you, his blood shed on behalf to forgive your sins, to forgive mine, that we're made right with God because of our faith in Jesus, our trust in him. And there's a little cord that's at each of the communion tables. If it helps you to remember, take one tonight. Put it up in your dresser, hang it on your mirror. And every time you see it this week, just remind yourself, Jesus, I'm so glad that you were my lifeline, that I didn't have to figure out a plan on my own. I didn't have to try to navigate out of doomsday. I was doomed. I had no hope. I had no plan. I had no ability to make it right. But you made a way that I might have life with you. And this week, what does it look like to begin to, to say, I want to be more like this faith in action that we see in Rahab, that she wasn't held back by her label. God looked past her past and gave her a new future and a new hope, and she lived with Israel. And she became a part of the story that God was writing. And that's you, that's me, that we get to become a part of God's story. And what does it look like to be a person who lives with this active faith? What does it look like to, to let God be at work within my life so that other people might see and begin to, to wonder, begin to, to be pointed in a direction toward this God who is alive and active in the lives of his, of his people, even today. And so, Father, that's what we pray in these next few moments as we take communion, as we pause, as we reflect on the grace given to us in the life, the death, the resurrection of your son, Jesus that through faith in him, we can have life with you. Jesus, you, you're our lifeline. And may we lean into that anew this week. May we be reminded that faith is to be active and that you're already at work in our life in the backdrop and in ways you want to use our life to help put on display your grace, your hope, your love for people because you love people. And you want to use us to maybe to begin to capture people's attention and point it in your direction. So would you show us maybe a way that, that can work out this week? Would you give us opportunities to let your love and your hope and your grace shine in the way that we live, that people might see you? And as we think about you being our lifeline, would you let an attitude of gratitude, of just gratefulness, grow up in our heart? We're so grateful for you, Jesus. We worship you. We love you. We're grateful for you. As we sing this song, and as uh, Brian shares a couple quick things, and as we sing a song to go, I pray these next few moments as we worship you, that you would move our heart with gratitude and gratefulness. We ask that in Jesus' name.